Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm not afraid of sticky situations. I've been stung before, but I'm not scared of you. The only thing that gets me is not seeing this. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Honeybee by Shiloh Hawkins. Shiloh is our featured Ohio music artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about her and let you hear the rest of that excellent song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. Well, Steve, I avoided doing this one for a while because, frankly, it's very involved, complicated, and worth an entire podcast series. But it's hard to call ourselves Ohio Mysteries and not cover one of the biggest whodunits in the state's history, maybe one of the top five murder mysteries in the entire country. Oh, you have me intrigued. Let's tell me what it is. Well, I am talking about the murder of Marilyn Shepard and the two trials of her husband, Dr. Sam Shepard. Sam Shepard, okay. Yeah. Okay, so well known, it inspired a 1960s TV series and a 1993 movie called The Fugitive. Harrison Ford. Not to mention a dozen or more documentaries. Yeah, Harrison Ford. He was very, very good in that one. Absolutely. You know, this is a case that also made it to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, which made a landmark decision on a suspect's rights to a fair trial. And it launched the career of a young, brash criminal defense attorney, F. Lee Bailey. Oh, O.J. Simpson. Yeah, O.J. Simpson. He became a household name in his own right long before O.J. Simpson. 55 years later, this case isn't likely to ever be solved. One jury found Sam Shepard guilty. Another found him innocent. You'll find books with really compelling arguments that he did it. Other books with convincing evidence on how he couldn't have. To this day... We still don't even know what the murder weapon was. Oh, wow. But let's back up, because as well known as this case was, it's been almost six decades, and so we should start at the beginning. Sam Shepard was born in Cleveland, the youngest of three sons of a physician. He went to Cleveland Heights High School, where he excelled in academics and sports, and was class president for three years. It was also at high school where he met his future wife, Marilyn Reese. 
Sam followed in the footsteps of his father and both of his brothers and became a doctor, a neurosurgeon to be exact. He completed his internship and residency in Los Angeles and married Marilyn in Hollywood, California in 1945. A few years after that, they returned home to Ohio and Sam joined his father's medical practice at Bayview Hospital. Sam, Marilyn, and their seven-year-old son, Chip, lived in Bay Village. Their backyard was a beach on the shores of Lake Erie. And that's where they were, July 3rd, 1954, enjoying a nice, casual Saturday evening with some neighbors. Don and Nancy Ahern and their two children came over for dinner and drinks on the shepherd's screened-in porch, after which they watched the sunset. Don Ahern took his children back home, tucked them into bed, Marilyn put Chip to bed, and then the two couples settled down in front of the Shepherd's TV set to watch the movie Strange Holiday. But Sam was tired. He'd spent the day working in the emergency room at Bayview Hospital, so he ended up conking out, falling asleep on the daybed in the living room, and just after midnight, the Aherns departed. Five hours later, the phone rang at the home of Bay Village Mayor Spencer Hauk. Sam Shepard was on the other end. My God, Spence, get over here quick. I think they have killed Marilyn. Hauk and his wife Esther hurried to the Shepherds as dawn began to rise. They found a shirtless Sam sitting in his den, holding his neck. Sam told them he'd been awakened to Marilyn screaming his name. He said he ran to the bedroom where he saw a white form with bushy hair standing next to the bed. Sam wouldn't commit to whether the intruder was male or female. He said he fought the form but was struck on the head and briefly lost consciousness. He woke to find Marilyn in a pool of blood on the bed. He took her pulse. There was none. Instinctively, he ran to his son's room to assure himself Chip was okay. He was. Then Sam ran downstairs just in time to see the intruder running out the back door toward the lake. Sam followed the figure and lunged for it. The two tussled on the beach, a fight during which Sam again lost consciousness. And that's where he lay until about 5.30 a.m. He went back into his home, picked up the phone, and called Mayor Hauk. Police were on the scene by 6 a.m. Officer Fred Dranken found Marilyn's body. She was on her bed. There were two twin beds in the room the shepherd shared and she was lying face up. Her pajama top was pulled up and the bottoms pulled down, exposing her torso. More than 20 gashes had destroyed her face. An autopsy put the time of death at 4.30 a.m. The autopsy also revealed that Marilyn was four months pregnant. Investigators found blood all over the room and evidence of a robbery. Sam's black medical bag had been spilled in the hallway and the den had been disturbed with drawers open and items tossed on the floor. A search turned up a few items, including a wristwatch and a fraternity ring and a small canvas bag that had been tossed into some shrubbery outside. While the crime scene was still fresh, Cleveland Browns quarterback Otto Graham, a friend of the Shepherds, stopped by to see what was going on. I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, a little, little trivia there. Police allowed him into the bedroom. Graham was later quoted on what he saw. 
It looks like someone stood in the middle of the room with a great big can of red paint and a brush and flicked it all around. This wasn't a couple of blows. Oh, no. Whoever did it, they had to be out of their mind. By 8 a.m., Cuyahoga County Coroner Sam Gerber had arrived, and he came to a conclusion very quickly. He remarked on the scene that it seemed obvious to him that Sam Shepard had killed his wife. After his initial crime scene investigation, Coroner Gerber went to the hospital, spoke to Sam for 10 minutes, and collected his clothes. The only significant blood on Sam was on the knee of his pants, as if he had kneeled in the blood. As investigators questioned Sam, even accusing him directly, Sam insisted on his innocence, repeatedly saying he loved Marilyn. Marilyn Shepard's murder made news around the country. At first, news reports were sympathetic to Sam, blaming the act on drug thieves. But the rumor mill churned, and it definitely swung against Sam as the handsome 30-year-old doctor was revealed to be a philanderer. Many saw Marilyn's pregnancy as motivation for Sam wanting to be rid of his wife. Sam repeatedly denied being unfaithful, but when a lab technician named Susan Hayes admitted to a sexual relationship with him, well, let's just say it didn't help that Sam was now perceived as a liar. The press turned against Sam as well, and in historic fashion. Cleveland Press editor Louis B. Seltzer led the way. When the Cleveland Press demanded an inquest, an inquest was held the next day. When they demanded Shepard be arrested, he was arrested the next day. The ability of the local press to cajole authorities into action would become a major factor in a U.S. Supreme Court decision to come. But back to that inquest. After the Cleveland Press demanded it, Coroner Gerber ordered it held on July 22 before a crowd that was packed into a Bay Village school gymnasium. Gerber made Sam's attorney, Bill Corrigan, sit in the stands. Shepard sat alone at the inquest table, wearing a neck brace. Sam's answers seemed cool and detached to those present, and it went against him that he continued to outright denying having extramarital affairs. The crowd hooted and hollered, sometimes outright cheering wildly. A week after the inquest, the Cleveland Press editorial headline said, Quit stalling, bring him in. And so police arrested him. They didn't get a confession, though. Shepard never waved from his story. On August 16, a grand jury heard some interesting evidence. Mayor Hauk told them Marilyn Shepard once confided in him that her husband was a Jekyll and a Hyde. And an investigator said there was some evidence Sam wanted a divorce, but Marilyn wouldn't give him one. The grand jury returned an indictment of first-degree murder. The trial opened October 18, 1954, before Cleveland Judge Edward Blythen. And as expected, it was a public circus covered by celebrity journalists from all over the country. Sam's defense attorney asked to move the trial out of Cleveland to get a more objective jury. Judge Blythlin denied it. Corrigan asked to delay the trial until publicity died down. Judge Blythlin denied it. 
The case was ultimately heard by 12 jurors, 11 of whom admitted they had read extensively about the case. And quite memorably, because this is just never done, the Cleveland Papers made the decision to run the photos and bios of all 12 jurors. Oh, so that's, okay, that would be very uncommon then. Yeah, 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 that doesn't happen. The prosecution was up first at the trial, trying to build a case on the theory that Sam killed Marilyn after the couple quarreled over his infidelity. They showed gruesome, full-color slides from the crime scene and autopsy. Sam asked for permission to leave the courtroom when the pictures were shown. Judge Blythen denied his request, and so Sam stood in a corner of the room with his back to the screen. Police testified there were no signs of a struggle inside the home, no forced entry, no weapon had been found, but the coroner testified that bloodstains on the pillowcase indicated the silhouette of a surgical claw-like instrument that he couldn't identify. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction. That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. The bloody fabric was passed through the jury so they could see the imprint as the coroner described it. A detective testified that Shepard's account of the incident had changed. In one telling, Sam had said he was hit by the intruder going upstairs. In another version, he was clubbed in the hallway. and another, it happened in the bedroom. The state rested after bringing in 24-year-old Susan Hayes to talk about her affair with Sam. Then it was the defense's turn. Sam's attorney, Billy Corrigan, argued the couple had just enjoyed the best four months of their marriage. He pointed to the serious injury Sam sustained, saying that that was proof he'd fought with someone. Medical professionals from the hospital confirmed there were observable muscle spasms in his neck, that his feet were shriveled up as if they'd been in the water of the lake for a long time, that an x-ray revealed a probable fracture of a second cervical vertebra. And despite the blood sprayed all over the bedroom, the only blood on Sam Shepard was that small patch on his knee. Could he have bludgeoned someone in a bedroom that was sprayed with blood? Then Sam himself took the stand for three days, describing his marriage as fairly happy and saying he and Marilyn never discussed divorce. In his describing the events of the night, however, People were struck by his strange language. He talked about visualizing a form rather than seeing a man. He talked about being stimulated to go to Marilyn when he heard her cry. That the form he wrestled on the beach had evidence of a good-sized head. The jury didn't think a man emotional over losing his wife would strive to use such sterile clinical terms. And in cross-examination... Sam was finally made to admit his affair with Susan Hayes. The jury were sent to deliberate on a Friday. They returned the following Tuesday. It took 18 ballots to come to a unanimous decision, guilty of murder in the second degree. 
Judge Blythen sentenced Shepard to life in prison. So guilty in the second degree means that it wasn't pre-planned, is what they're saying. Right, right. That means uh, the jury found it happened spur of the moment. Gotcha. Well, the whole affair had devastating effects to the family. A few weeks after Sam's conviction, his mother, Ethel Shepard, shot herself. Eleven days after that, his father, Dr. Richard Shepard, died of stomach cancer. And a few years after that, Marilyn's father, Thomas Reese, killed himself in a motel room. Jeez. Shepard spent the next decade at a prison near Columbus. The Ohio courts rejected all his appeals. And Cleveland Press editor Louis Seltzer published an autobiography patting himself on the back for his role in convicting Shepard. But there were some glimpses of hope. Dr. Paul Kirk, a respected California criminalist, published a report that said Marilyn's murderer was left-handed and probably used a flashlight. He said there was blood in the bedroom that belonged to a third party that was neither Sam's nor Marilyn's. Three months after that report came out, a neighbor next to the Shepherd home found a dented flashlight in shallow water in Lake Erie. And then, in November of 1959, a man who had washed windows at the Shepherd home was picked up for larceny. He'd been implicated in a string of robberies in the area. His name was Richard Eberling. And a search of his home turned up many stolen items, including two rings that belonged to Marilyn, although he said he stole those rings from her brother-in-law's house four years after the murder. A police officer questioning Eberling bluffed when he asked Eberling why his blood had been found in the Shepherd home back in 1954. Not knowing that no such thing had been found, Eberling volunteered that he'd cut himself while removing storm windows in the house a couple of days before Marilyn's murder and had dripped blood throughout the home. That was a pretty good strategy on the part of that detective. Yeah, for sure. Sam's attorney, Billy Corgan, died in 1961, but Sam found a new advocate in a young, flamboyant attorney named F. Lee Bailey. And in April of 1963, Bailey sought a new trial, saying that pre-trial publicity had violated Sam Shepard's right to a fair trial. It could be right. Well, yeah. I mean, by this time, the public's opinion of Sam might have been changing a bit as well. That 1960s television series called The Fugitive, it was about a doctor wrongfully convicted of killing his wife, who was now on the lam and trying to track down the real killer. And that may have extended some sympathetic feelings of yours <laughs> to Sam. The waters are getting murky there. <laughs> yeah. In any event, the new appeal worked. In 1964, federal district judge Carl Weinman overturned Shepard's conviction, calling the 1954 trial a mockery of justice. Shepard was released from prison on a $10,000 bond, and he quickly married a German woman he'd been corresponding with. Soon after that, a federal court of appeals reinstated Shepard's conviction, although allowing him to remain free on bail pending one final appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. And when that came the following year, the high court agreed with Weinman 
but the carnival atmosphere had made it impossible for Shepard to get a fair trial. In its ruling, the Supreme Court also pointed out how Judge Blythen had refused to sequester the jury, never ordered the jury to disregard media reports of the case, and that he had once told a newspaper columnist during the trial that Shepard was guilty as hell. The landmark decision set standards for trials that we still rely on today. Cuyahoga County prosecutors, they said fine. If the first trial was done poorly, then they'd do it again. The second trial of Sam Shepard began on October 24, 1966, this time with the jury sequestered and decorum prevailing. There were a few changes this time around. The prosecutor decided not to bring up the idea of a surgical instrument as a weapon, although on cross-examination, the defense got Coroner Gerber to admit that he had searched all over the country for a surgical instrument that would match the clawed silhouette that he described and printed in the blood, but that he couldn't find one. And Shepard's affair with Susan Hayes, it was not pursued and only briefly mentioned. There was a new twist from the prosecution. There were blood spots on the rim of Sam's watch, and a forensic expert said the shape of those drops proved the wearer of the watch had to be present when the blood was flying through the air. But defense attorney F. Lee Bailey countered with his own expert, who said the shape of those blood drops was consistent with contact transfer. He was also able to introduce the more recent revelation that the killer appeared to be left-handed, Shepard was right-handed, and that there was blood in the room that didn't belong to either Marilyn or Sam, suggesting a third person had bled on the scene. Bailey didn't want to leave the jury without at least a plausible alternative killer. He didn't bring up Everling, the window washer, because the man had taken a lie detector test in 1959 and had passed it, and Bailey really didn't think he was guilty. No, but the reasonable doubt is enough. Well, it, he came up with a different, okay. an, a, a stunning alternative. Okay. He heaped suspicion on Esther Hauk, the wife of Mayor Spencer Hauk, who you will recall Sam called the morning of the murder. Bailey suggested Esther had accused Marilyn of having an affair with her husband and killed her, possibly with the help of Spencer Hauk, and that Spencer was the bushy-haired form that a concussed and confused Sam Shepard had chased onto the beach. Testimony had pointed out that Marilyn didn't die from any one blow that night, that she had bled out, suggesting that whoever struck her didn't have the strength to deal a killing blow. Bailey even got Esther to admit on the stand that she started a coal fire in her fireplace the morning of the murder, even though the coldest it got that night was 69 degrees. Bailey hoped jurors would simply conclude that Esther Hauk must have been burning evidence. Bailey didn't need the jury to believe Esther Hauk was guilty, just that it was possible for someone other than Sam to have done the deed. Sam, for his part, did not take the stand this time. Bailey knew his cool, arrogant style would not win fans on the jury, and he didn't want the prosecutor dwelling on all the points in Sam's story 
that Bailey knew were hard to swallow. On November 16, 1966, the jury announced their verdict, not guilty. Sam was free, but there was no happy ending. He tried to return to medicine, but he was out of practice and challenged by a serious drinking problem, reportedly consuming two-fifths of a bottle of alcohol on a daily basis. Just five days after being granted surgical privileges at the Youngstown Osteopathic Hospital, he botched a surgery, cut an artery, and killed his patient. Later that same summer, he nicked an artery on another 29-year-old patient, killing her. And that German woman he'd married, she filed for divorce. Shepard became engaged again, this time to a Colleen Strickland, whose father, George Strickland, was a professional wrestler. Desperate to find something to do with his life, Sam let Strickland train him to become a professional wrestler. In 1969, he made his debut under the unfortunate name of Killer Shepard. No way. This is... Can you believe it? No. He was a big draw. He wrestled more than 40 times, but his career and his life were to be short-lived. On April 6, 1970, at the age of 46, Sam collapsed in his kitchen and died there. The cause of death was liver disease. While F. Lee Bailey might not have wanted to evoke the specter of that window washer during the 1966 trial, Richard Eberling's story was far from over. In 1989, a jury convicted Eberling of first-degree murder in connection with an insurance scheme involving an elderly widow, Ethel Mae Durkin, in Lakewood. In investigating that case, it was revealed that both of Eberling's sisters, Myrtle Frey and Sarah Farrow, had died mysterious deaths. Frey was killed after being beaten and strangled. Pharaoh died after a fall down the basement steps of a home she shared with Eberling, a fall that broke both her legs and both her arms. Adding to the intrigue, Eberling told reporters he knew more than he would say about the Shepherd case. And two people told investigators Eberling confessed outright to killing Marilyn. Those witnesses were not deemed credible. One was a fellow convict, and Eberling died in prison in 1998 without ever having admitted to authorities a role in Marilyn's death. And notably, subsequent modern DNA testing could never prove Eberling was at the crime scene, although, also notably, the tests could never rule him out. In 1997, Chip Shepard filed a civil suit against Calga County on behalf of his father for wrongful imprisonment. In the trial that followed, Chip Shepard's legal team argued Eberling had tried to sexually assault Marilyn, that he killed her when she resisted. They named as the weapon a lamp that had been on the nightstand, a lamp that was missing from the crime scene on July 4, 1954. The county lawyers argued that in spite of the not guilty verdict in 66, the first jury got it right. Sam Shepard had killed his wife with the dented flashlight that had been found in Lake Erie. Chip Shepard lost his case. Six of the eight jurors said they were not convinced of Sam's innocence. Before we go on, I want to give credit to much of the trial research I used in this story to a website called FamousTrials.com. 
I have a couple of opinions on this case. First of all, the attack seemed pretty personal. I mean, there was a lot of blood. Right. You know? So that, that kind of tells me it's personal. Another thing is I think they really botched the first investigation. I think that they arrested him too fast. I kind of blame the newspapers for that, you know, printing out they should arrest him. They were that powerful back then that they, they, they print something and boom, it happens. Uh, apparently so, because it even led to a U.S. Supreme Court decision that really reflected on how much power the newspaper had over this case. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it, they turned out to be that powerful of an no. influencer. Mm. Yeah, like I said, I think they just, you know, they arrested him too soon instead of really investigating it and, you know, getting every kind of detail they could, so... Yeah, it's um, probably one of those cases where you think you've got the right guy, so you try to form the evidence to fit that person rather than going where the evidence leads you. All right, well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say. Hello, we have this superb podcast called We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by Billy Joel. It is the most original, fascinating, and random way to learn the story of the 20th century. Oh, pretty darned random. And we are joined by some pretty incredible guests. I only wrote stuff that I wanted to hear. If it turned out to be a hit, it was pure dumb luck. With me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Well, tonight's armchair detective is Douglas Martin, who lives out in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but is from Northeast Ohio. Hi, Douglas. Hi, Paula. Hey, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I grew up in the eastern suburbs of Cleveland, specifically Mayfield Heights, in my younger years, and then in Chesterland, which is out in Geauga County in my later years. And you have a specific interest in this case, don't you? Yes, I do. Tell me why. Well, there was one day I was kind of rummaging through some of my mother's possessions, and I found this paperback book that was about the Sam Shepard murder case. And I'd never heard about it before, even though my mother grew up in that area in Mayfield Heights when she was young, early to mid-90s. I just happened to hear a report on the radio one day that uh, the following day they were going to be tearing down the the former home. So a friend of mine and I at the time, we used to spend a lot of time, you know, just hanging out at some of the Denny's restaurants, drinking coffee till one, two in the morning, whatever. And so we decided to go out and take a venture out that day and, uh, just go past the house and see where this happened. Now, I know you've read extensively about this case, so I've got to believe that you have a pretty firm opinion of who did it. So let's just cut to the chase. Did Sam kill his wife? My uh, belief is that their handyman, Richard Eberling, is the culprit. He seems like an easy target to go to once you hear his background and obviously him being convicted of another murder. What is it about Eberling's story that really convinced you that he was responsible? Well, five years after the murder of Marilyn, he was brought in on burglary burglary charges in that same area, in the Bay Village area. 
a couple of those things that were found in his possession were Marilyn Springs. Plus, from what I understand, he had a real obsession about Marilyn. One of the things that seemed really damning about him were these murders that were kind of in the shadow of his life. Well, there was the murder that he committed of that widow, but then the mysterious deaths of his two sisters, which seemed to be in question. And, right. And, what and did they, you, also say, they also say that his father died of poisoning. Oh, I hadn't even heard that part. Wow. He might have been a serial killer. Exactly. I thought it was pretty interesting also the strategy that detective used in saying, gee, how come we found your blood on that site? Uh, just bluffing. Yeah. And then he confesses, oh, yeah, a couple of days before she died, I cut myself and bled in that room. That's, well, he said he bled all over the house. Yeah, that, that seemed like a pretty big coincidence there. Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem like we're ever going to get a real answer to this. They have tested the DNA of the blood that was in that room, and they can't prove it was Eberling, but they said that they also couldn't... They, what did they, they couldn't rule them out. They couldn't rule them out. And, you know, if they can't do it now, I'm not sure how much more DNA technology can approve, improve. Maybe someday... But, boy, this just seems like a case that's not going to get a definitive answer. Right. I mean, you're going to have certain people that believe one way, certain people that believe another. But as far as uh, every the general consensus, I don't think that will ever happen. Right. Douglas, thanks so much for joining tonight. We really appreciate you sharing your insights on this. All right. And thanks for having me. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Shiloh Hawkins is a singer-songwriter from Youngstown, Ohio. The guitarist is known for her emotive vocals and captivating storytelling. We lost her for a time. Her career took her to Austin, Texas for a while, but the pool of Ohio was too strong, and she came back and resettled in Columbus. All right. You can follow Shiloh Hawkins on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or keep track of her on her website, ShilohHawkins.com. She does a lot of performing, and you know, looking at her website, I can see she's going to be at the Port City Pub in Portsmouth, Ohio, on January 25, the Appalachian Listening Room in Logan, Ohio, on February 6, and Indian Bear Winery in Walhonding, Ohio, on February 7. Shiloh's album, When You Love a Traveler, was released last year, and the song we're featuring tonight is on that album. All right. Well, welcome back, Shiloh, and uh, get out there and support her, for sure. At the start of the podcast, we played a clip of Honeybee by Shiloh Hawkins. Here is the rest of that song. Enjoy, and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Change your direction and fly with
welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.